And, you know, it's interesting to look into these intelligent, uh, they're called intelligent tutorials that have adaptive learning in it because someone was sharing to, with me yesterday, I just can't keep up with the range of different abilities in my mathematics course. I, I just can't do all of them. So I said, well, then there are adaptive learning ones for the particular math. And they said you could use them as complements to what you're already doing because those the, the best adaptive technologies are highly individualized to know what where someone is initially and what he or she may need to get better. And it loops back until you get it right, so to speak. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome back to the second episode with our guest, Peggy Mackey. Peggy, glad to have you back. Thanks. Happy to be here. And I'm also happy most of the time to be with my co-host, <laughs> Tiffany Snyder. Lies. Now, actually, all the time. All the time. Hi, everyone. Let's get back into the questions. Does the online learning environment present additional challenges with the application of learning analytics that might not be present in the classroom environment? Um, I think... Uh, the learning curve initially, I would be um, remiss not to say that. You need to know the tools that you want to turn on in the analytics there. For example, um, do you want to have an automated response to how well they did on a particular, let's say even just a quick quiz, or do you want to add a personal comment yourself? I, I think, for example, that after a while, the students know what the automated response is. And I would prefer to say, I'd like to add something personally that says you've done really well in this one. But in this particular problem, I think you, you're having difficulty with X, Y, and Z. I think it's more the issue of learning about how to use it and how you want to see the results. Um, and But the benefit is that you can do it in real time to say, gee, the next time I see this student or even right now, I can do something about it now. Because you know that the longer the time between when you do that, when you did it in the classroom and the, t and the time you see the student next, there's a fall off because the student's thinking about other things and you're probably thinking about what's going to happen next in the course, but you really can't go on if you've learned that there are these challenges that still exist. I think it's the learning curve, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I I don't see it so much as understanding the analytics because you can request the results to be presented in graph form or table form. So you can see for an individual student, for example, how well they did on each of those questions. You can see it for the whole class, for example, and say, oh, gee, everybody's having, or most everybody's having a problem with that. It's more, the, I think, the learning curve. Thanks, Peggy. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are joining us from uh, Indiana Wesleyan University, the national and global campus. Uh, and I know for us, we use the LMS Brightspace and we have access to course progress to be able to see some uh, analytics. But actually, this year we'll be rolling out some data dashboards on faculty and student engagement. So that real-time engagement wow. data, which I think wow. could be uh, really important to, to this conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at the, the, the final slide I will show you, 
uh, looks at a student's engagement in participating in discussion groups or posting uh, information, engaging in collaboration. And, and it, it turns out, though, I don't have all that data to share or permission to share that for the particular student, um, there's suddenly a drop off and there's a drop off in actually her performance in the class as well. So that there's where you have this opportunity for multiple sources data. And that's really important for us. Doesn't mean that you can't do it. But what we have to figure out is what's happening here. And there's where I say, gosh, there's an opportunity for me to reach out to her and say, gee, let's talk about what, what's really going on now. And I think a lot of you experienced that during the pandemic, is mm -hmm. that you might have seen a, a performance drop off simply because of the way life was then and maybe continues to be right now. Above all of that is is your human professional judgment that only you can determine what all of that signals and the machines can't do it. The learning analytics can't do it, but they can give you fascinating uh, sources of data. All right, we'll go to the, the, the next one, which is very common to most of you. And from what I've uh, learned from my research through the pandemic is that I think formative uh, learning analytics was used more frequently than anything. And I think it's because, again, of the drop-off of students and trying to figure out, gee, do they uh, retain this or not uh, over, over the amount of time that we're here. And again, you decide if this is graded or ungraded. And it is possible, I would say, that students could say, I'm kind of weary of you assessing me all the time. And I think it's important for you to say to them early on that, the, the reason you're doing that is to try to find out how well they're doing to see if, if it's necessary for, for you to make some interventions to slow down, uh, to be clearer about something as part of it. But it's not necessarily that you're looking at them to grade them on everything, but really to become informed yourself about their particular um, progress. And so you see on the, the left, all possibilities that you could use. And in your LMS, there will be usually a rubric builder. At this particular time, unless the LMS has integrated an independently designed courseware that actually scores student work, and that does exist in the, in the world, the rubric would be, would be shared with other people scoring if you had multiple scores or you just simply score the, the work yourself. And then you return that online to the student with your inserted comments. And that's valuable immediately because based on those comments, you might say, I would really like to talk to you a little bit more about this part of it, for example. And then you could set up a video call. You can say, we'll talk through email, we'll talk through a chat, but there's that immediacy of that real time that means I can catch it now as, as part of it. But this is also useful for me to say, even though I plan things this way, um, I see that there are these particular patterns that are emerging. And one of the really great ways to stay on top of things, because I think we're concerned about building students' sustained, enduring learning. That is through all we're doing in a course and across a program. It's to keep building on our work to say that our students are graduating, having these sets of abilities. But to, to make sure that that's happening, there's a good use of the flipped 
classroom. So if I'm ending a unit, so to speak, and the next time I see students, I'm going into that, that a new unit, what I could ask the students to do the, the night before or the day before is a um, brief exercise, not an exercise, maybe a case study to see if they have actually retained what I taught before, because why go on if there are still some problems? So they do this quickly. I get that evidence before me. And so in that next course, before jumping into that next module, I say, look, it seems to me there seem there are some difficulties you're having with these particular aspects of what we just studied. So that there's this um, opportunity to do um, retrieval practice, interleaving practice, uh, to keep building on the learning. Because not everybody's going to be at the same place, even though you think uh, they are. Um, and one of the uh, great developments, I think, is a product, a platform called Echo360. I'd be curious if any of you have used it. And it's um, learning analytics built into um, a, a live video presentation, but enables me giving a lecture to periodically ask questions and students respond on their computers. And sure enough, can't I see that based on that question, there are still these misunderstandings, misconceptions, errors, for example, that I need to attend to before I go on. And I've met with a lot of faculty who've said, whoa, I was just going on with my lecture in the past. And I'd ask anybody have any questions, nobody would raise their hands. And here, you know, there's half the classes having trouble with X, Y, and Z. So this enables me to say, I, I need to spend time with these students. Maybe I can group them, but I tell you, sometimes even within groups, there will be individual uh, obstacles. And um, that's why I'm, I'm saying we need to be situationally uh, aware through the use of the formative. And it's easy for, for students to sort of silo their learning and say, well, I learned that last last week, we don't need that now. I mean, I used to have students who would say to me, well, what, what was the test going to cover? It's just what you did this last week, right? But, but that's really not what this is all about. It's about how we build that network that we talked about earlier uh, today. So the formative is for us to keep our eyes on things, to see who needs our help, to close those uh, gaps um, in learning, and for me to learn as part of this as well, that that particular pedagogical approach I use just isn't working for everybody. What else have I developed? And an interesting resource, I think, for us are the open educational resources, the OERs, um, to see if there are other people who teach what I teach. Are there other strategies that I could build into my set of strategies as well to help along with the students. A question I'm thinking, uh, some of our listeners, not all, but some of them are handed courses that are already designed and laid out in a given way. And so um, they may not have the freedom to add a graded formative assessment, um, ungraded perhaps. Any suggestions for how they can um, maybe take some informal ways of incorporating ungraded formative assessment when they don't have the keys to the um, the design of the course? Are they talking about online or or does it matter the, the mode of delivery? That's a great question. Um, I was framing it as an online course. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Because I think even if you're handed it, you would still be able to, because it's live, right? Or, well, not an mm-hmm. asynchronous. You'd have to really make sure. That would be something you have to work out. But in in a, in a live exchange, I think you can do that. You should be able to, to just say to students, look, I'm curious about X. Um, could you answer this particular question for me? Um, the other thing that I think I always found or I learned this was important was to periodically just say to students, I want you to discuss among yourself what you think you, ha- you have learned. Maybe it's on a particular unit. And what you still think you're struggling with or what made sense to you or what doesn't. And then just just send that back to me. But anonymously, you can have that done with a small group instructional person coming in, an outsider coming in, another person coming in to ask questions of the students. Because I think it's important for them to know that they're players in this. And I'm interested in you learning, so I need to build those in. So I think they can be done on the spot almost. And particularly if you know they're running into some problem, you can see it in their work, that would give you opportunity to say, tell me, you know, how why that doesn't work or what you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. So that actual direct communication with students, I think. So you could have an a chat room, right? Mm-hmm. If you wanted to. So those options always exist. Um, conference space, email, um, to and, and my daughter taught her first online course several years ago, and she said, it's, I don't think it's going to be successful. I just don't think we're going to have the interaction. And so when the students evaluated her at the end of the semester, the thing they said is, we always felt you knew where we were, meaning in terms of mm-hmm. our learning. And that meant a lot to us. So that says to me that, you know, being able to find out about them is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And it sounded like there's a bit of a case, or I'll make a case then for synchronous sessions too. So if you do teach online um, and primarily asynchronous, but you have the option of opening the door for students to meet with you in a synchronous, let's say Zoom session or something, you can pull um, and use the different features or even just have a conversation to see, check in and see how students are doing. So thank you for that. So then the, the, this one you're all familiar with is the summative use of the learning analytics. And here you are really drawing from students' final work in whatever forms that, that you have requested them to represent the learning in. And I would always say to accompany that with uh, their, a stu- <coughs> excuse me, a student poll or, or a survey, having them, you know, specific, more specifically, not, not just did you like this or you didn't like it, but specifically, when did you think you did learn and under what circumstances? My role in drawing from that, as well as the, the, the final results of my scoring, let's say, of that, is to try to draw some correlations between everything I have been doing in the course or that I have asked students to do. So it's the activities that they've engaged in, the things I've asked them to read, the changes that I may have even made on the spot to uh, then design or or revise the next iteration of that course. But I'd still say that even with that knowledge, the next group of students may present different kinds of challenges. And that's, that's the reality. Um, of this. Um, But it is fruitful to to just sort of step back, self-reflect on all that's gone on and say, how would I do this next time around uh, when I do it? 
Um, I do need to share with you something that a, a chemistry professor uh, shared with me not too long ago using analytics. And he said, believe it or not, I uh, was in the phase of wanting to redesign my chemistry one course. And I used this real time learning analytics as the, as the means of finding out what students th think works and doesn't work. And lo and behold, the first one he used in the course uh, was to engage students in uh, collaborative problem solving online. And this was a class of at least 40 students. And what he found, because he could track the level of engagement through the evidence that uh, learning analytics also stores, is that almost 10, I think he said 10 to 12 students really didn't participate at all. So they were on, they logged in, but they didn't participate. There was no exchange with them. Um, kind of shocked by this. He thought he had uh, created pretty good groups for this to work. Decides then to, and this is a good move, to interview them, manages to get to almost all of them, although some had dropped out uh, since then, and finds that this is what they generally said. We didn't feel we were smart enough, given the other people in that group, to participate, so we chose not to. So that means early on, students felt marginalized. Again, not that they couldn't learn, but maybe they were slower in learning that than some of the uh, other people. And he said this, getting this, this evidence along the course really helped me rethink when I do things, how I structure them. Um, and that came from the data, but also from also talking to students as well. I thought it was a great example. And I hadn't thought of using it, necessarily changing the course, uh, using it for that purpose, but he said it worked really well. It worked in terms of, of language that I used that they didn't always understand, processes that, that I didn't explain well enough. Um, great example there. All right, so the big issue for me in terms of learning that lasts, building sustainable learning is, are there ways for us to share what we learn from our teaching and practices and the changes we made with our colleagues, particularly in a program of study or when there are multiple sections of a course that we are teaching? We will have all this data now from a course that we could come together with to say, let's talk about what we learned in the first year of teaching chemistry or the first writing uh, component of, of, of the, the discipline. And, and is it possible to use some sort of taxonomy that would make sense to you to say, what are the types of errors that I talk about or weaknesses or what I call sometimes fuzzy thinking that I think still persist. I tried hard, I think I made some gains, but I can be pretty sure that you're going to see this again because some of these ways of thinking persist. The question is, what are you gonna do about it receiving these students? What are we gonna do it along the longitudinal look? And what's the context within which they seem to struggle with the patterns? And uh, for example, in the sciences, particularly in lab sciences, a lot of faculty have shared with me that students can do a problem sort of in the abstract, but when they're in a situation of a lab, they don't necessarily know which kind of computation to use in that particular experiment. Um, so that might be a persistent 
problem that people see that we say, well, you need to address this along the way. We have to figure out ways that can enable students to do this. And what are the interventions that you tried or maybe others tried and it worked beautifully that helps overcome some of those weaknesses, fuzzy thinking um, errors. So what we know now about practices such as based learning uh, might be a solution to that. And in a lot of these strategies now, active learning strategies, there are multiple opportunities in a course, not to mention along the progression of a program to practice, practice that which we consider to be difficult for, for many students to learn. Um, and that's, I think, is really key to how we use all of this data, how we look at it, when we look at it, and how useful it is for us to say, look, we're seeing the same kind of problem, or they might say, I see these kinds of problems, how did you address it? And we form communities of practice maybe based on particular courses or maybe based on the outcomes that we want students to achieve, but we're gonna begin with this one because it's the most difficult one so that we are really promoting learning that lasts. And I see the, sort of the breaks in that happening a lot when faculty will say, I expected students at this point, it could be the third year or the fourth year, to be able to do X, Y, and Z, but I don't see it. I have heard faculty say to students, you should know this by now. And the students will say, I don't think we ever learned it. Well, they may have, but they may not have had the practice that they needed to continue to build on it. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we have, but the most important one, to assure ourselves and students before they left that they've got these things down. And the way they're going to get them down is through monitoring in the class, monitoring along the progression uh, of, of the, the program in different contexts and even more complex contexts so that they've got it. Um, and that students have taken accountability also for that learning, because once they leave us, there's not going to be somebody uh, on their shoulders helping them figure things out. They're going to have to figure out themselves. Um, so I'm, I recommend something in this order to say we have access to incredible data now. What can we do not only as an individual, uh, but as a group as well? And then I think we're going to. Ah, I'll show you one quickie and then we have to go to questions, right, Tiffany? Yep. <laughs> All right. So because you brought up the issue of um, looking at more behavioral students' behaviors here, here's just an example of uh, a way to look at students' behaviors in terms of how many pages she read, which for this particular faculty member is significant because it's in history, and her participation. So participations really mean in group work, uh, postings, discussion groups, collaborations or so. So you see her highs and lows. And, oh, and this is only for this week. That's what the dotted line looks like. But you see how the visualization just really helps you capture not only where an individual student is, and you could request that this is the format you want to look at, then you could say, look, LMS, I want you to show me this for my entire course. And then you can see how many outliers, in a sense, there were who, who just did not participate and begin to wonder. And there's a lot of reasons why students don't participate. So the example I gave you is one. 
could be the reading is difficult, the vocabulary is difficult, that they need to have more uh, guided participation. A lot of research I've looked at now is saying that even when they're in, in discussion groups, it's good to have even an upper level student, if not the faculty member, sort of be in there to guide things along a bit until they take off. Um, but this I consider to be such a wonderful piece to, to share. We could share across courses. Uh, we could look at it longitudinally as well. For me, this realizes uh, what the research says is that learning is a dynamic ongoing process. And here it is, assessment is that connector for us between teaching and learning. I'm learning, students are learning, and we're trying to develop their agency for learning as well. What do you think it takes for this taxonomy to be embraced and used well across a program of study? So everyone agrees it's important, let's say, that they, they agree we need to sure. be doing this and tracking this, but uh, what does it look like to do that well when so many yeah. players are involved? Yeah, I, I do think that the, the, the untapped resource that we can create are communities of practice. So that could be that there are first-year faculty, for example, I don't, it depends on you know what's most important, but there has to be some sort of meeting ground, I guess, where people come together and share. And, and the, these data can be shared because you'll have these charts and graphs that you can use to have those discussions. Um, but it means we got to be on the ground, so to speak, in some way in which we can meet online and share these or in person to be able to get a grip on where students are when they come in, what does progress look like or not, and what are we going to do about it in real time? Um, so I would, I, I'm a big proponent of uh, communities of practice, of, uh, you know, focusing on what's happening on the here and now and reserving time. Now, the thing that's happening now is so many things are changing in higher education that it may be we have to rethink what our practices are in terms of uh, teaching and learning and learning from each other. There's an amazing amount of learning that goes on peer to peer in higher ed because we're filled with experts. It's incredible, wonderful. Um, but how do we tap into it? Can we create occasions in which we spend time looking at our students' progress, not just reporting it out for the sake of showing that we are assessing and here's what we found, but what are we learning from it? Um, and, you know, in workshops I've done, some of the most fascinating moments are when we're in workshop and people are talking uh, to each other and trying to work on problems they're, they're having and they resolve them themselves. So the natural tendency is there. It's the creation of the opportunity, I think, that we need to really carve out in the interests of students' equitable progress um, towards achieving those outcomes. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Peggy. We have someone um, posted in the Q&A. We have Ellen. Ellen asked, will students be aware that their progress is being tracked? And then um, there's a second part to that question. Yeah. But the first one <clears throat> ends there. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think uh, with their, this brings up all these ethical issues, and I think it's very important for them. I mean, I've been at some institutions that actually will ask students to sign a form that says, "Do you, are you willing to have your uh, work tracked or your record tracked? And, and I think generally students are. Um, but it is a, a significant issue. I mean, I would, if that's not the case, I would certainly say at the beginning of the semester, I want you to know that I'm going to be looking at your work over time, that we may be 
but not your work so much, but when we're using uh, what, what our findings are to try to improve what we're doing or uh, make better progress on that. But I do think they do need to be drawn into it. And most of the sort of policy statements I'm reading now are saying that, that we've got to let them know because there is that fear that they think that it will be used in, um, in the wrong way, mm-hmm. that they might be signaled out. Um, the other thing I guess you could think about is if they keep the e-portfolios, um, they, of course, could be tracking themselves. But if there's some way in which that can be used as a vehicle to to look at the patterns, but I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But it's a really good point to bring up that at some point, if the, if the institution doesn't have a policy that you may need to, to say to them in your class, you do agree to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be easy, uh, at least at our institution, to assume that they know that because there's um, the ability for both the instructor and the student to select course progress and to uh, yeah. view some of these analytics. And yet that's an assumption. They may not necessarily, um, right. without that, you know, um, informing early in the class, realize that, yes, we are looking and tracking. So I appreciate you kind of covering just that simple step of communicating upfront that mm-hmm. um, they could expect that we're, we're looking. Sure, sure. A second uh, part of Ellen's question uh, will, is, will any of the taxonomy work as well in fast-paced online courses? And um, I'm assuming Ellen may be referring to, um, at Indiana Westland, we have a lot of six-week courses um, and it's a lot to cover in six weeks. So have you seen this working effectively in that kind of timeline? It could. It certainly could. I mean, because there are going to, particularly because things are are accelerated, there there can be some major difficulties. But because you feel the pressure of the time, um, and and you, and you want to see them make the progress, you're going to see, you're going to experience, just in your own documentation, the things that were difficult for them that maybe you didn't feel you could have you had the time to cover. And in that case, then you would have to say, gee, if I teach this course again, or we're teaching in this condensed format, there need to be maybe alternate learning opportunities surrounding the course. So I could identify a student early on who needs more practice in the, I'm just making this up, but mathematical side of things, then there's a program that I could uh, align with the course that I could say to students, I really want you to work on this one. before you do this next problem, for example, or, or whatever other resources there there are, because I'm sure that the same kinds of issues in an accelerated course will be there as they are in a more traditional length course. And so that would be interesting discussion across other people teaching accelerated courses is what are we finding that we need to either spend more time on or offer alternative teaching and learning resources for. And, you know, it's interesting to look into these intelligent, uh, they're called intelligent tutorials that have adaptive learning in it, because someone was sharing with me yesterday, I just can't keep up with the range of different abilities in my mathematics course. I I just can't do all of them. So I said, well, then there are adaptive learning ones for the particular math. And they said you could use them as complements to what you're already doing. Because those, the best adaptive technologies are highly individualized to know what, where someone is initially and what he or she may need to get better. And it loops back until you get it right, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, work cited uh, are ones that I um, have documented in the text. 
Um, uh, but I would like to point you to the MIT Open Learning and specifically look for research. It's a great resource for active learning strategies. And among my favorites is a faculty member teaching students to solve a fairly complex problem. So he does it once himself altogether. The next time he does it, he does it small, very small scaffolding steps, right? And then the next time he does it, he does it with the students and he says, okay, now let's do this again. Let's start with that first step. Now you do it. And he goes through it that way until they get it down. It's great. Whole bunch of uh, active learning strategies, the, the, the ones that are based on research and that uh, Barbara Oakley talks about a lot. It's a good resource. Thanks, Peggy. Peter asked, is it fair to say that in order for these assessments to be effective, they should be part of the student's early experience so that when the concepts of analytics are discussed halfway through a program, they're not brand new to students? Yeah, I, I absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. That it, 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 they want, we want them to get used to it. We want them to be able to see on their dashboards as well as mine how well they're doing. One thing I think is a little tricky maybe early on is if you choose to use a reporting that, that shows them how they line up with their fellow classmates that could be intimidating that's a little bit about the chemistry one i told you about where that they early on they just just didn't feel as if they said they were smart enough but yes i think that that needs to be a part of how the student the how course rolls that both and to say to them for both your purposes and for mine together we're going to learn how you doing i want to know when you're having difficulties be able to figure out and help you keep going um, and then how the progression goes once we've had that discussion and how you are in the end. Yeah, I think they do have to get used to it. And I think they do. I mean, from my experience, students will say, I appreciate your staying on top of things that I didn't realize that or I appreciate that you helped me. And that response that my daughter got that we always knew you knew where we were I think that's a good way to present it to them, maybe, because uh, that's what they want. That's the inter interaction that they really want. But, but good point. Yeah, that's part of the part of the new culture, I guess I would say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sneak in one more question if you and, until Peggy tells us she she has to go. We have another question from David uh, regarding yeah. that taxonomy of weaknesses, errors, or fuzzy thinking. Uh, could yeah. some of these be brought to students' attention through the testing of students as part of the enrollment process? Um, if a lack of preparation uh, is then observed, the student could uh, delay taking courses until they've obtained the training they need or the accommodation. For example, our institution uh, is an open enrollment institution and students come to us with varied levels of prepare preparation. Sure, sure. You know, I had not thought of that, but it's something to consider, right? And maybe that would be a part of their, whether you have a portfolio or not, but part of their looking at themselves over time. Um, the tricky issue is if they are really need that support, and, and you probably already know this because of the literature on that, is if they feel that they're um, remedialized, so to speak, mm -hmm. that that is, is a stigma. But if they're, the practice now that seems to be working is the, the co-requisite uh, <clears throat> registration where I'm 
taking whatever it is I need to help me along with the course. But there may be reasons why that doesn't work. But um, I had not thought about that, but that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's your baseline? What, what were you like when you were here? And look how you're doing now. And another thing that I would say creditors just don't pay attention to. These are human beings mm-hmm. coming in from all different mm-hmm. experiences. Um, so I appreciate that comment here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I know I have the inside scoop that you're working on a book chapter. And uh, I would love if you could just tell us where we can find your work or where we'll, where we'll be able to turn um, yeah. to see what you're writing. So the um, most recent piece that I have done is um, in a book. It has a long title, so I want to make sure oh. that I'm, <laughs> I'm putting it on the spot. <laughs> it's called it's a Reframing Assessment to Center Equity. So that book has, I think, just come out. And so there's a chapter in it in which I talk about leveraging these uh, technology-enabled results um, to close uh, gaps in learning for all students. I base it really on a lot of research on learning about how difficult, how complex learning is and about the research that I shared earlier about the different systems that we grow up in, but that we're born to learn. It's a question of figuring out where students are and how we can help them through a course uh, as well. Um, But the argument I make is it doesn't help to classify people, to say they're in X group or Y group, Um, It helps if you can get to the individual level. And if someone said to me, what do you consider to be the most powerful, one of the most powerful teaching and learning methods, I would say either sitting down face to face with a student or online spending time, let's say, with videoing with the student. Because when you can be with them and you can look at their work and you can discuss it and you can, in my case, because a lot of courses I taught were writing. I would read their paper in front of them and say, oh, I could understand, I could understand that. But then all of a sudden you went here, then we could have a discussion about that. And the person could say, oh, now I understand what you're saying. Um, So all of this is really very powerful in terms of helping individual students. And it just doesn't help to say this is a member of this group who has this kind of issue it's so individualized that you can't even do that and it's only with the argument I make here when you get down to that level it's hard to do I know that in face-to-face when you have large classes but with the analytics this can be scaled up for very large classes so that you can pull that data down and say this this student really needs my attention right now so that has been the latest work um, What I'm considering now is working with a learning designer and talk about the design of courses and programs with, I guess I would say, a broader look at the places in which students learn that may not necessarily conform to what we traditionally say is this is what I'm going to assess. And what can we learn from those other possibilities about what's valuable in in those particular kind of relationships, such as informal learning? Um, peer learning. And so we're going to see where that's, that will take us. Uh, but, and the analytics will be useful for us. I know that there are analytics for collaborative learning now, but besides that, learning is occurring all the time. Can we capture more and learn more based on the science of learning as well, I would say. Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. 
but we're excited for you. (laughs) (laughs) We're excited for you and what's to come. Um, And just thank you so much, Peggy, for joining us for our kind of first series, first three-day series of the Digital to Learn podcast turned webinars. Um, So thank you for being here. Oh, I was happy to join you. And to all those watching or listening, uh, we will try to have more webinars uh, coming up in the future months. But what we have every week is a podcast, a Digital to Learn podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Um, Check it out, Digital to Learn with a numerical two. And you can also access past episodes. You can refer to our website, digitaltolearn.com for those as well as additional resources. We have some episodes with Peggy uh, as well as links to her Uh, social sites and some of her publications on that site as well. So thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Digital to Learn. Bye. Bye, Peggy. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. It's a digital world. Always keep learning.